All right, Pete Giuliano. It is Saturday, the 9th of December, 2017, and that makes this solder smoke... 201! 201. You know, our viewers can't see you through the radio. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have radio vision. No, you do what I do, because we're here yeah, on yeah, the, the yeah, miracle yeah, of yeah. Skype, and Pete Giuliano is festive today. The... The beret, the chick magnet beret, has been replaced by, a, I must say, a quite jaunty Santa Claus cap. I'm going to ask him to send me a picture. I, I, I will later on try to use my uh, my snipping tool here in Windows to snip, because the, this has to be recorded for the ages. This is phenomenal. I mean, it's really great. I, I'm intending to wear it today. We're going out. Uh-huh. I want to see if this is this is a better chick magnet than the beret. <laughs> the beret will be hard to beat, my friend. <laughs> hey, I I just was re- reminded of something. We're we're at a, a a a sort of an anniversary here today. This is our first uh, podcast of the Giuliano epoch was um, three years ago, and we've done thirty two podcasts in three years, which is yeah. pretty good. We're 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 pr- sticking pretty close to our one yeah. per month one a month uh, yeah. uh, production goal. But I want to thank you, Pete. It's been it's been amazing. You have revitalized, rejuvenated, reinvigorated all that good re stuff, the Solder Smoke podcast, and and I hope we have many. I hope we see you coming back with this hat for many many Christmases <laughs> yeah, to come. Uh, me too. <laughs> but there's a danger right now. You're you're in the hot seat, my friend. Correct? Oh man, yeah, yeah. People people out there might not know. Pete asked me when when, when we started up this morning. He asked me about the weather here. And we are having a very nice snowfall here in the Virginia area. Temperatures right around freezing, snow, light snow falling. We're supposed to get between one and three inches today, the first real snowfall, first snowfall of the year here. But you have an entirely different problem at the opposite end of the temperature spectrum. Tell us about it. Yeah, terrible fires. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, where, where I live is about 40 miles um, northwest of Los Angeles, and I'm about uh, two miles inland. And if you uh, would put a compass, uh, put one point of the compass uh, where I live and draw an arc about uh, 10 miles, and just at that 10-mile arc, it's all on fire. <laughs> it is on fire. I am not kidding you. They've, they've burnt close to 200,000 acres and uh, I think so far there's only one fatality, which is kind of amazing. But uh, they've destroyed, uh, you know, literally thousands of homes and, yep. and businesses. Just amazing. But it's amazing weather, too, because it's all driven by this Santana, Santana wind. Right? Holy yeah. cow. And that's something that people might not be aware of, even those of us over here on the on the East Coast. I was explaining this to my wife. So you could have extremely dry conditions, but winds up to 60 miles an hour, right? Yep. It's yes, like true. it's like it's like a hurricane with no rain. Yeah, my my poor beam. <laughs> you should have seen it. Oh my but, gosh. But 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 I looked at it. I did a good job on the guy. I mean, it was whipping around, but it, it didn't come down. So I feel pretty and, good about that. And that is the main thing, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing that's interesting is the Santa Anas. Normally, you get the offshore winds that blow in- inshore. The Santa Anas are reverse, so they they blow from the desert out towards the ocean. And and when they blow, especially this time of year, um, I mean, it's it's like almost hurricane force. Uh, but with no rain. rain. But no rain. No Just rain. Completely yeah, dry yeah. and hot. Yeah. And you've got uh, remember, you've got some of that brush down there that hasn't burned yeah. in ten years. It's been drying out for ten years. 
Oh yeah. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's just tinderbox. And the thing is the the winds whip whip up the embers. Yeah. So that carries it. And uh, as a matter of fact, just as a point of reference, you cannot drive uh, Highway 101 to Santa Barbara. That, that's a major artery. <laughs> I mean, from Los Angeles, you got to go all inland, and even inland, some some of the area. Matter of fact, there was a really a an amazing scene here a couple of days ago on the 405 that closed the 405 down. And a 405 is a major artery that, that goes in down to the airport. <laughs> I mean, there's these people at 6 o'clock in the morning, bumper-to-bumper bumper traffic, and the whole side of the hill is on fire. It's undaunted. <laughs> undaunted. You know? They got to get to work, man. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just oh, go. gosh. Yeah. Well, that's terrible. All right. And we even had a small earthquake over here. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. We had like a 4.4 earthquake. I didn't feel it. I was in the car. But Maria's friend said that they uh, they felt the tremor. So exciting, terrible times here. More for, more for you than for us. The apocalypse. <laughs> well, well, you know, here, the, I mean, the earthquakes are so small. that I, I might have mentioned it, that the, the meme that came out after the big one that we had here, it showed a, one lawn chair on its side. And yeah. the logo said, Northern Virginia earthquake, we will rebuild. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So that takes care of the uh, the weather report. Fire, snow, earthquakes. What next? Plagues of locusts. We'll see. Famine. Famine. Yeah. Hey, but, but know, I want to mention. Of, go ahead. That, before I forget, where that fire struck, that is a major agricultural area. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's citrus, there's avocado, and and you burn two hundred thousand oh, acres. Watch the prices at the supermarket. They better not mess with my aguacate, man. I want. <laughs> we have become yeah. stone cold avocado junkies here. And yeah, we, we yeah. gotta have those those that fruit. It's not cheap yeah. either. It's like a dollar yeah. a pop. Holy cow! Anyway, all right. Now speaking of your hat, Pete, I want to mention something here. We don't necessarily want to give a, an in depth review because I know you haven't worked on it and I haven't either. But Santa Claus arrived at both of our locations. Oh, he did. He did. He did. Yes. In the form of a, a DHL package from Hyderabad, India. Yes. Pete got a Ubitix. Or a, do we call it a microbitix or you Microbitix. Microbitix, and I got a microbitix too. Now, we, the DHL guy came, and, and we weren't here, so he left a note. So my wife is like, what is this? Who is this? What's going on? So I'm at work the next day, and I get this um, text message with a, with, a, with a photo attachment to it, and it's the label on it, and it says, Hyderabad. And I went, yeah. <laughs> mystery solved. Thank you, well, Farhan. Well, I got to tell you something. The the DHL guy showed up at eight o'clock at night and and rings the phone and rings the doorbell, and we get all these weird people come down through our neighborhood. So I throw open the door and I said, "What do you want?" And the guy said, "I got something for you." Yeah, he said, "Oh, thank you." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it looks really cool. I mean, yeah, it's it it's a, it's an all it's it's going it's 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 moving me into the multi band universe, Pete. You and I, I think, have both been monobanders for a long time. You, you've been more multi-band than me, but I, I almost everything. I've never. I tried once to build something for two bands, and it was a, a catastrophe. Yeah. What What I hope to do, Bill, um, I, I ordered an enclosure for it. What I hope to do is kind of document what I've done, Good. so that maybe maybe of use to other people, like what I did with the Bidex Forty. So, I, I I took a look at the size, and it looks to me I, I put a put a bigger. Ch- chassis box i think i got a 12 by 8 you you don't need something that big but if you want to add things it's better you have a little more room (laughs) well well pete you know what my first instinct was 
go for that. Go down to Michael's and get another one of my favorite wooden boxes. Yeah, yeah, that's about the right size. It yeah. is, no, it, no, it'd be it'd be perfect. It'd be good, and there'd be some room in there. Yeah. Very good. All right. So thank you to Farhan, and those of you. I mean, there are people out there who are just salivating at the prospect. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's worth it. There's some cool pictures out there. I'll try to put some links put put some links up here when I get the. Uh, it's at a different. It's at a different link. It's at a different link. All right. Well, yes. we'll, we'll get we'll get it. We'll put it up on the. Uh, do, you, do you happen to know what what it is? It, it's HF Signals. Not HF, HF Signals. Okay. HFSignals.com. Yeah. There's a paper in the in the box that said, "By the way, go here." All right. So if you're interested, go there, and I'm sure you will be because it is. It looks extremely cool. It's got a lot of the. The basic coolness of the the, the, the 40-meter Bidex, but of course now multi-band. Ooh, thank you, Farhan. Moving moving us all forward. All right, Pete, I thought we would begin with a, a bit of, of history, because we've been reading from electric radio, and I just find something that I've, every once in a while I find, I think, wow, this is something that we really want to read. This is a real good one, because this is the uh, a real international brotherhood of electronic wizard story. It's uh, it's an article entitled Milestones in the History of Amateur Radio, the 1MO French 8AB two-way transatlantic contact, November 27th, 1923. Snell. That's Frederick Snell, isn't it? No, no, yeah, no, no, it's Leon Deloy. Deloy? And then the 1MO guy, I'm not sure who 1MO is, but we'll... That's, we'll that's Frederick Snell. Oh, it is, you are right. Yeah. You know, you know everything, <laughs> man. You got, yeah, Fred Snell, 1MO. With, and the homemade receiver with which he copied French 8AB. I'm going to put a picture up there of of Mr. Schnell. The weird thing is that Schnell looks remarkably like Leon Deloy over there on the other side, French 8AB. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a doppelganger kind of thing here. But I'll, I'll read you some articles. This is a nice, a really nice article written by uh, Robert E. Grinder, K7AK, and it appears in the February 2006 edition of electric radio which was given to me by by our good friend armand down there in in um, richmond all right amateurs who were experimenting with vacuum tube apparatus were becoming aware that the new refinements would function satisfactorily in the 100 meter range but the technological advantages peaked little interest in the shorter wavelengths which were thought to be useless ludditeism was present the amateur community in late 1923 was blinded by its fixation on longer wavelengths and its misconception that its wavelength at 200 meters was really too short rather than too long for DX transmissions. Even after military research demonstrated the efficacy of short waves for long-range work, quote, the inertia of mass sentiment could not be overcome. The inertia of mass sentiment. A common theme through ham radio history, sadly. Sad but true. Pete, it's our job, and the job of all Solder Smoke listeners, to break the inertia of mass sentiment whenever possible. By the way, something a little scary. Yeah? Podcast 169. Uh Uh-huh. On December the 6th, three years ago, Started off with a discussion of 200 meters and down. Oh, my God. Remember that? 200 all, meters and all down. All I can so, say, all I yeah. can say, <laughs> I mean, the radio gods have spoken. Yeah. I didn't know that, but here we are again. This yeah. is a message, a message from yeah. a, from yeah. above or from wherever. Yeah. All right. 
Let me read you some more. A great deal of the credit for breaking this inertia of mass sentiment must be attributed to Leon Deloy, 8AB, French 8AB. This is before the prefix. He was just went by 8AB for possessing the acumen to plan the contacts carefully, to utilize the finest receiving equipment available, and most importantly, to choose to operate more or less on faith near 100 rather than 200 meters, and risk thereby the possibility of continued failure should sporadic reports of successful long-range transmissions on 100 meters prove ultimately to have been mere freaks of nature. Now listen about the old man Leon. Leon here. He's this is this is somebody. Leon has the knack. Let me tell you, because the article points out Leon Deloy, eight AB Frenchman, quote, lived, thought, acted, and worked with one objective to work across the Atlantic Ocean. So said De Soto in 1936, page 86, in 200 meters and, and meters down. And down. <laughs> wow. There you go. Okay. I'll skip forward here a bit in the article. Robert M. Morris, uh, uh, his call sign was 2CQZ, CQZ, almost CQR, 2CQZ and later W2LV, was among the dozens of amateurs who listened to the 1MO, 1XAM exchanges with 8AB. Morris found that getting his equipment to work around 100 meters was akin to struggling in a no-man's land. But once he managed to copy 1MO, he found it possible to tune his apparatus for 8AB. He said he listened to the three stations for five or six nights. So can you imagine? You listen to it for five or six nights. And this is the only amateur transatlantic contact ever. He's listened to these three guys talk, two up in one land and one, in eight, one over in France. Finally, he said, on December 3rd, 1923, perhaps when the thrill of the achievement had dissipated somewhat, Deloy decided to determine whether he could contact anyone else in the United States. When Deloy made his intentions known, Morris gave him a long call. Illegally, for he did not have permission to transmit on 100 meters. On a low-power vacuum tube transmitter. He was QRP. QRP, my friends. To Morris, to Morris's everlasting amazement, ADAB responded, Morris believes he made the first transatlantic contact from the second radio district in the United States and that he had become the third American to contact 8AB. I'll wrap it up here. This is the last paragraph. We owe thanks to Deloy, Reinhardt, and Schnell for hastening the migration of amateurs to the shortwave regions of the radio spectrum. They were the first amateurs to show convincingly that 100 meters, which had heretofore been regarded as even more useless than 200 meters, represented, in fact, a motherload of opportunity for DX communications. Well said. Well uh, a couple of postscripts to that. Before you forget, where is 100 meters? Three megahertz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try, 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 try contacting Europe on low-power transmitter. Three megahertz, and there's yeah. a postscript to that too. Is Schnell got a commission in the Navy based on that because the Navy suddenly wanted to be able to use the higher frequency, so he was Lieutenant Schnell 
uh, in in the you know he got some sort of a temporary commission because the Navy said, "Uh oh, this is really good." <laughs> so it's amazing. You, you, the Navy's the one that screwed us over, saying you can only have two hundred meters and down. So what happens? Yeah. There you go. Well, you, you, you're talking bad about your former service there, Pete. I, well, hey, call a spade a spade. <laughs> this weekend, Army-Navy game. Yeah. We're not going to get into that. We're not football fans here, really. Not really. Hey, uh, hey, did you get a new pair of glasses? You know, wait a second. You're going to mention this. I have not been using my glasses. Technological innovation. But I thought I'd mention it because many people in our listening audience might be interested in this kind of thing. <laughs> I don't use the glasses that much anymore. Guess why? Because I have bifocal contact lenses. Wow. That's pretty cool, huh? Bifocal contact lenses. I I was just going to say that those glasses look like your big boss wears. (laughs) 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 I've seen them on television. I I bought glasses just like that. Well, I I, I figured I I needed some new ones because when I got the bifocal lenses, I still needed a little bit of the for the reading, and I got them like a whole box of them at at CVS. But bifocal contact lenses, guys, they work. They work pretty good. All right, Pete, got to move to the bench. You want me to go first, or you want to go first? Yeah, because you got exciting things going on your bench. Well, this is this was all. launched by our friend Bob Ledoe, N7SUR, a while back, he kind of said, hey, why don't you guys come up with some projects for a simple receiver that people could build? Now, you've been doing simple receivers for a long time, but you took up the challenge in your way, and I took up the challenge in my way. You know, it's not it's not a rivalry. It's not a competition. We're not going to war here over how to generate the local oscillator energy. But, of course, everyone who listens to the show knows that you have your certain preferences and i have mine variety is the spice of life oh yeah absolutely we have a lot of that here so i i decided i think the basic idea was what bob gave us and that is all right for a while we were doing the michigan mighty mike transmitter the joy of oscillation getting a a simple circuit to generate rf a great moment for a home brewer but i grew up in ham radio hearing that the hard accomplishment, the tough thing to do, was for him to build a useful receiver. For the longest time when I was a kid, it was viewed as sort of like the impossible dream. Hams could homebrew their transmitters, but the receiver really should be a commercial product. And I think some of the radio magazines and perhaps the manufacturers encourage this line of thought. But it's not true. You can build a very simple receiver that is extremely useful and will provide a lot of good service. Now, I must say, the guy who really kicked off this revolution is our friend Wes Hayward, W7ZOI, because he wrote an article in QST in 1968 called Direct Conversion, the Forgotten or the Neglected Technique, and that was what launched the Direct Conversion revolution. Now, I know a lot of people say, why Direct Conversion? Why don't you build a superhead? And I've heard a bit about that from you, you know, because I know you're, you're thinking that way too. And I understand the sentiment. But the thing is, the beauty of the direct conversion thing is it's so simple. It's a real simple. It's basically three or four stages, depending on how you count them. And you only have to have one oscillator, one mixer, and Bob's your uncle. So I started thinking about the, uh, the simple direct conversion receivers that I've seen. And one problem that I have with many of the designs is that they they usually have an IC in there for the audio amplifier, right? So 
that really kind of conflicts with what I think should be part of the kind of the ethos of this project, which is build it with discrete components and make it so that you really understand the purpose of every single part that you put into this thing. And when you when you throw a chip in there, it makes that difficult because the chip really becomes, depending on the chip, more or less it becomes a little black mystery box. And my idea is break out those, those little black mystery boxes and use discrete components. So, I mean, the, 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 the block diagram is real, real simple. You have an input circuit, usually a filter, a bandpass filter of some sort. You have a mixer. You have an RF oscillator that runs right at the frequency that you're trying to listen to, or a little bit off, maybe 1KC off. And you have an audio amplifier. So the signal comes in from your antenna. It mixes with the signal from the RF amplifier that you've created. The difference frequency is audio. You go direct to audio, and then you amplify the audio, and you're done. So it's a very simple block diagram, but again, I wanted to get away from uh, uh, chips. So the first thing I did was to look for uh, a discrete component audio amplifier. We had used one back when, when I was building scratch-built bidexes, and so I, I made use of that. It uses a 2N3904 and a 2N3906, kind of in a complementary pair push-pull arrangement. And it's good because it feeds right into earbuds, which everybody has right now. I'm also sort of aim, thinking about my nephew, John Henry, and I figured he's got probably, like everybody else, got a house full of earbuds, and he could just use those. So that's the audio amplifier. For the mixer, I looked around for a circuit. Now, I, now I operate in a really high, intense, RF-intense environment here in Northern Virginia, so I have to be careful about getting a mixer circuit that will not allow for what's known as AM breakthrough or AM detection. I found one in Sprat in the in the issue in the Sprat issue Sprat 100. It was a design um, by a, a French fella, F5 LVG Oliver, and I it, I really liked it. It was very simple, so I used that one, and then I, I started looking around for a um, an oscillator that would be stable because I wanted to meet your demanding standards for stability. <laughs> The Giuliano criteria had to be met. The Giuliano criteria is it should be at least as stable, sort of, as an SI5351. I found a, a guy that we've talked about many times here before, Miguel, down in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, PY2OHH. Got a lot of great stuff on his site. And he looked at circuits using ceramic resonators, like variable ceramic oscillators. So instead of wiggling the crystal, you're going to wiggle the ceramic resonator. And I poked around and I found from Mauser they were selling ceramic resonators at 7.37 megahertz. Now you, what you usually do with these things is you pull them down. So I got some from Mauser and discovered that it was very easy to pull the frequency of these ceramic resonators down into the phone band of the 40 meter band, which was really useful. So it required some experimentation, and I finally got it to the point where I could use a combination of a coil and capacitor so I could get full coverage of the 40-meter phone band with almost crystal-like stability. The Giuliano criteria were being met. So I built the first prototype, and my original idea was to build it in an iPhone box. 
because I had a whole bunch of, we got some new iPhones here, iPhone 6 boxes. And I built one, and I sent it off to my nephew, John Henry. He has it now, and I think over the Christmas break, he's going to be testing it out. But then I went ahead, and I wanted to have one here that I could work on, so I built a second one. I almost put it in the iPhone box, too, but I decided not to. I decided to use a different box. Uh, I used a, an old Bud box, an old chassis that I had laying around. And I, you'll see pictures of it up on the uh, on the website. I had this really great dial, this Archer dial. It's kind of cheapy because it's got like a cardboard back to it. But it's been kicking around in my junk box for since about 1994. Oh, nice looking. Oh, I got it from um, Pericle, H-I-A-P. Pete can see it. It's in the background. Yeah. yeah. Um, down in the Dominican Republic. And so I wanted to look for a It fit perfectly into the bud box. The radio gods have spoken. That's the way it's supposed to be. So I put the board in there, and I got it going. And it, it's, been a, it's been a really good, good project. Uh, it's, and I think it's a real international brotherhood project. I mentioned uh, PY2OHH. I mentioned the French mixer. I use a part. One of the, the coils that I use in the mixer actually came from Farhan. Farhan gave me a whole bunch of coils that it, they used in the Bidex when he came through here. So I used that in the, in the mixer. It works great. I consulted with uh, Joe in Freiburg, Germany, who's working on a similar project. And when I fired it up, one of the first things I heard coming out of the speaker was uh, the roosters of Boa Vista, Brazil, PV2AL, down there. Uh, and so, man, the radio gods have spoken. All right, so what I want to do is I want to launch this as a kind of a kind of Provide some information that will help people to build this thing. But based on your experience and some of the conversations we've had, I think we have to emphasize from the beginning that this is a homebrew project. So anybody who takes this on has to expect some struggle, some heartache, some head scratching. They have to do some noodling. They have to figure it out. This is not plug-and-play radio. This is build it yourself. And it can be difficult. So let's just say from the beginning, no sniveling, right? No right. whining. Right. Just grab that soldering iron by the right end, not the wrong end, by the right end, and get to it, build this thing. We stand by to help you, but we can't build it for you. you got to do it yourself because that's the whole point, right, Pete? Anyway, so... First thing I would say, I'm going to put up on the blog in the next couple of days sort of an initial thing about what you should do to get going in this project. First, determine that you are going to, in fact, build it from scratch. I heard some guys looking at this thing saying, great, you know, I'm going to work up the boards and send them off to China. Then we're going to stuff the boards. Okay, you could do that. I suppose there's some attraction to that. But I think you're getting away from the main purpose because then you're not really doing it. Right? You might design the board then you stuff the board. And I don't know. I, my My preference is... Don't do the boards that way. Do them Manhattan style. That way you, you're, you're going to be like kind of, you know, kind of freestyle building. You'll, you'll have much more contact with the circuitry. Second, gather some parts. Now, if you're an experienced whole brewer, you probably have most of the parts sitting around your shack right now. But if you're not experienced, you're going to have to go out and get the parts. There's lots of parts sources. There's DigiKey. There's Mauser. There's eBay. You can get a lot of parts on eBay. Here's the other thing. Some people like different parts sources and some people don't. Some people seem to want to get into flame wars about which parts sources they like or don't like. I don't like eBay. eBay is terrible. eBay is a ripoff. I don't buy anything from China. Oh, they're all fake. I don't know. Whatever whatever works, just go out there and gather the parts. But here's a, here's a, a piece of advice. Don't go out there and buy resistors in onesies and twosies. 
It's ridiculous. I mean, they're so cheap. You know you're going to need a whole bunch of resistors, and you know you're going to need a whole different variety of values for the parts in the future. So don't take a look at my schematic and say, okay, I need one, two, three, four, you know, 1K resistors, and then write off an order to Mauser. No, look for an assortment. You know, there's all kinds of places where they'll sell you a resistor assortment. They'll sell you, you know, 500 resistors in a little box. Look around for those. Same thing with capacitors. Um, just realize that you're going to need a whole bunch of parts for projects in the future and to finish these things. So no onesies and twosies. Um, and I'm going to follow N6QW's lead on this one, sort of along the lines where we were saying there will be no bill of materials. Now, it's too hard to do. And not only that, part of the fun is scrounging up the parts. You might find some of these parts at a ham fest. You might find some on eBay. You might find them on Amazon. You can even search these parts on Amazon. Anyway, I, I would do it that way. Get a few tools. You're going to need a few tools. If you don't have a soldering iron, well, duh, you're probably going to need one. So get a low-wattage low sol soldering iron. Also, if you're going to do this Manhattan style, I think you should get some tin shears. You can get them down at Home Depot. They look like a big scissors, a big sturdy scissors. And they're designed for like trimming the tin for roofs and stuff. But, but I use them to cut the, 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 the copper clad board. You're going to have to buy some copper clad boards too. So you can find those in the same places I mentioned about the parts. But tin shears are good because then you can cut the board to whatever size you want. And also you can cut out the little isolation pads from a piece of scrap uh, PC board. You're going to need some super glue. Get all this stuff together. Um, one thing, and this is hard. This is a hard point to make for new builders, people. We'll make it here. Try to think about the end product at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amen. Give Give some thought <laughs> to what kind of box this thing is going to sit in. Right. Amen. It helps Amen. if you do that. Amen. I mean, you might not end up doing it. You might just blow past this piece of advice. I certainly did many times. You did too. Yeah. But then you end up with really weird looking boxes because you got to fit your creation into something, right? It's kind of better if you say, all right, I'm going to put it in this kind of box. Here's another piece of advice. In the beginning, think big. Give yourself a lot more room than you need. You're always going to look at this little box and think, oh, yeah, I should be able to fit this in there, right? And then you end up with, you know, a tiny, with a box and a circuit that is much bigger than the box. So think big box, all right? Um, and, but think about that a little bit in the beginning. And that helps you sort of with parts placement and size. Think ahead a little, a little bit there. Then, then here's another important point. We make this often, but people usually completely disregard this advice. And that is build it stage by stage. Don't look at this as just a massive electronics and then you're going to throw it all on there and solder it together. And then either it's going to work or that Bill Mara guy is a no good so and so, right? No, no. Build it stage by stage. Now, I know you prefer to build the audio amplifier first, and that's fine. There's, there's some wisdom in that, of course. My preference is to build the oscillator first. The reason I do that is because I think that's the hardest stage to get right. Because you've got to get this thing oscillating, you've got to get it relatively stable, and you've got to get it oscillating in the desired frequency range. So once you, I always see that as sort of like the the beating heart of the receiver. Yeah, and it's beating at the frequency that you want to listen to. So uh, on a direct conversion receiver. So my advice is to, to build first the, the oscillator stage. 
And with a direct conversion receiver, let me throw out an idea. Build two of these things. Build two of the oscillators, right? One of them will be the variable oscillator that you use inside your first receiver. But if you build a second one, you'll get a little bit more practice building a circuit. Plus, that second one, which will be operating, will be running in the frequency range of the receiver, will be useful when it comes time to test this thing later on. You'll have basically a signal source that you could use to peak and tweak the receivers. This is especially important for those of you guys who don't have, you know, a signal generator. You know, it's only about four or five little pads on a piece of PC board, maybe 15 or 20 parts. So you build two of them, right? And then later on with the second one, if you get finished with it as a test device, it can become the basis for a second receiver. Don't think you're going to just do one of these things and that's it. There's no reason why you can't improve, you know, you know, version 1.0, version 2.0, Mark 1, Mark 2, things like that. So uh, anyway, that's that's my advice uh, on these things. Pete, do you have anything to add in the in the advice category? Oh, I, I think that's absolutely, you know, excellent advice. I, I was just, as you said, build two of them. I was thinking a companion transmitter. That could be later on. Yeah, I think I you're mean, right. But you you have the basis there. You right. Have another oscillator. You can do that. Um, I just wanted to throw out uh, a really good source of PC board on eBay is a company called ABC Fab. ABC Fab. And as a matter of we, fact, you, you was that the find, one you sent me? Yeah. Oh, uh, good. I'll put the link up on the yeah, on the on the on the, uh, on the, the show uh, notes. You get you get 18 pieces of four by six PC board. For a $20 bill delivered to your door. <laughs> I mean, and, and that stuff that you have is really good stuff. Because one thing people should realize about copper clad board or, or boards like this, there's a yeah. big difference. There's a lot, wide variety in kind of the substrate material. And some of yeah. this stuff is real cheap, flimsy, dry fiberglass. Yeah. It's very brittle, and I just I hate it. Not only that, when you try to cut it, it releases all kinds of fumes that you worry about. Yeah. But if you buy the stuff you have, it's solid, it's nice, it's clean. Yeah. I, I think that's a good source. $20 bill will get you 18 pieces. And uh, I bought stuff from this guy for about the last five, six years. And, and really fast. I mean, you put the order in, three days later, it's in your hand. So it's really I've got good. many of those pieces that you very kindly sent me, and I could attest to, to, yeah. the, to the usefulness of that, that particular product. I, I just want to throw something out. You were talking about guys sending their, their boards off to China. Um Something is, some revolution is happening in machine tools. You can actually buy a CNC mill to do those boards for about 230 bucks delivered. So, I mean, if you wanted to create your own island squares or not cut the pads, I mean, you, you think you send how many boards off to China? It's not going to be too long. You invested 200 bucks in, in a machine. So, you know, the CNC mill prices are coming way, way down, and you can make your boards, and you store it in the computer. So if you want to make number two, you just load load the stock and say push. I know you're wincing, Bill. No, I'm no, no. I, I, no, I was going to say I like that better because at least you're getting the tools and you're doing it right there in the shack. I think yeah. that's actually pretty cool. I just, I don't know, the idea of just sending it off. I mean, okay, I understand. No, I, yeah, agree, you, I agree with you. You know, it's nothing, but I mean, the, the thing thing that's nice about it, you can do some rapid prototyping, and if you got to make some changes, like say you made a mistake on that board from China, yeah. what do you do? Right, right, right. What do you right, do? Right. Whereas if you make the board yourself, you can do that. But yeah. I, I think everything you've said is absolutely straight. Now, you're going to document this? 
Uh, yeah, I am. I'll do <laughs> as much as I can. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I've done the schematic. We, we sent it off to Sprat, too, and I think uh, George Dobbs is going to use it in Sprat, maybe in the next issue. George has been having a, a tough time kind of filling up the magazine with technical articles. So when I heard that, I sent him kind of a Sprat. Sprat is very, it's dealing with a very kind of experienced homebrew community, so they don't need a whole lot of detail. So I sent off the schematic and a, and a kind of brief description of the circuit. But I'll try to do more in a series of installments up on the on the blog and talk about how to do it. And I will do it stage by stage. I have one kind of ready to go that, that covers some of the topics we just discussed. But oh, then I'll do great. one looking at the oscillator. And maybe I'll just talk a little bit now about the different versions. I told you about the one I sent out to my uh, my nephew. It uses a polyvericon. You know, these are those cheap little plastic variable capacitors. I with made an a discovery. Cup, with an amazing coupler. <laughs> oh, the coupler. Pete loved the coupler. Because, okay, there's a story here. The polyvericon is these little tiny, almost like one-by-one one little plastic things that appear in the old little portable radios. I mean, there's, the world is just filled with these things. Now, what I discovered is that there's good ones and there's bad ones. There's big ver big variation in the kind of the stability of these things. Um, so, But I, I found a good one for use in John Henry's receiver. And I, then I looked and I said, how am I going to mount this inside the iPhone box? So I just super glued it to the cardboard on the backside. I ran a shaft from a reduction drive on the front down through the center. You can see pictures of this up on the blog. But then I needed a way to connect the uh, the polyvericon shaft with the, the reduction drive shaft. So I reached into the box, the junk box, and I found this thing. What what year do you think that coupler may have come from? Oh, that's late 30s. So, yeah, so I found a, a, a shaft coupler from the late 30s. And Pete, I didn't even realize it. Pete spotted it when he saw the picture. And he said, wow, that thing, like, they did that for, like, that's rated at, like, one kilovolt, right? No, 10 10 kilovolts. 10 kV. 10 kV, yeah. I will very rarely be getting a 10 kV signal through this thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's there. And the other cool thing about it was Pete spotted the material. It is? It's ceramic and metal. On, yeah, on but end. This, is, this is the ceramic resonator, ceramic thing, another big piece of ceramic in there. So it was very yeah, suitable. Yeah. So anyway, that, that, that one is off with, with John Henry. Um, then I built the second one. And with the second one, I was... In John Henry's was fine. It was stable. I expanded the range on John Henry's radio receiver because uh, he wanted to be able to listen to the CW portion of the band. So I, I, I gave him a wider frequency range. All of this depends on the value of the coil and the capacitor to ground from the ceramic resonator. And you'll see that in the schematic. I already have the schematic up on the blog. But then on the second version, knowing that I would be facing you here, Pete, not realizing that you would be in a Santa hat, but knowing that I would be facing you, I knew that I had to come up with better stability. The Giuliano criteria was in mind. So I really started listening careful to the stability, that kind of the short-term startup stability, the long-term drift. And I figured I should be getting pretty close to crystal stability here with the ceramic resonator. And when I was doing it at first, it was just not happening. It really was drifting. So I started looking. I said, well, what's drifting? Is it the ceramic resonator? Probably not. But I've got things hanging off the ceramic resonator. First of all, some of the feedback caps that I had in there were not NPO. So I pulled them all out and I replaced them with quality NPO caps. That helped. But it was still drifting a little bit. I realized that the coil I had in there was not an air core coil. It was a toroid. And that'll always get you a bit of drift because as that 
material in the center of the toroid heats and cools, it changes the inductance that you in have in there significantly, so you're better off with an air core coil. Armand and I had found a whole box full of air core, air core, air core coils from Tektronix at a ham fest. They were the right value, so I put those in there. That improved it a bit, but it was still not quite good. Then I discovered that another source of drift in this whole thing was the polyvericons. There are good polyvericons, and there are bad polyvericons, but even the good ones, I've discovered, are not as good as a good air core cap. Sad but true. I mean, and I know a lot of these people are saying right now, Ha! Giuliano is right. Because those air core caps, those air, those air gap caps, those air variables, they're disappearing. They're expensive. They're hard to get. And Giuliano's right. Get the SI5351 going. Get yourself a rotary encoder and Bob's your uncle. Okay. He's got, he's got this grin on his face. Like, <laughs> see, I'm right. Sorry. Yeah. I, you're, okay. But there's a lot of these caps floating around in ham fest. You can get them on the internet. And there's even a manufacturer. A guy sent me a, a link to somebody who's still making them at 365 picofarad. Right. And so you can get them. I think there's thir- they're 13 bucks. All right. It's not going to break <laughs> the bank. If you can't find one in the junk box or at a ham fest or on eBay, worst comes to worst, you send these folks 13 bucks, you get a nice air cap and you'll get the needed stability. Um, hey, you know one thing I discovered about the polyvericons? This, I just discovered it this morning. You know, the polyvericons were used in these little pocket radios that came out when we first had pocket radios back, when was it, early 60s, late 50s, right? I used to, I had one, I used to use it because I, I could listen to rock and roll music and Wolfman Jack and all that without my parents knowing. This was like covert listening. But I had, not long ago on the blog, I put up a, um, a picture of the first what we call transistor radios. These little radios, I think they would fit in your, your pocket. You used to live, listen to them with a little ceramic earphone. And I looked, and where the polyvericon usually is, there was something different. And then I realized that I have one of these things here. If you look at that picture, you'll see one of these. That's a real variable capacitor. It, it's a variable capacitor, but it's the same size as the polyvericon. So they started out with these things. They're tiny little capacitors. They probably go up to, what, a 200 picofarad, right? And they were using these. These are much more expensive. And so later on, realizing that stability on an AM radio running at 600 kilohertz. Who cares? <laughs> right. Um, you know, Wolfman Jack's not going to get bothered by it. So uh, they switched from these. But there's still a lot of these around. I must have five or six of these in the junk box. So that, oh, yeah. that was kind of interesting. Hey, one other thing on this this topic, I want to mention it. Uh, I, I designed this receiver to run off a 9-volt square battery. And the reason I did that is I didn't want John Henry to have to fool around with, you know, wall warts or power supplies. You just plug in one of these 9-volt batteries and you're good. What do you call these batteries? If you, if you went to... A 9-volt battery? Yeah, Transistor yeah. radio battery. Ah, ah, that's it. That's what I call them. But think about it. The modern generation doesn't know what a transistor radio is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No. Yeah. I walked into, and I, but I'm dating myself here. I walked into to CVS, and I was looking around, and I, I couldn't find the right battery. And I said to the girl, I said, I'm looking for uh, a transistor radio battery. And she said to me, well, what, what is a transistor radio battery? 
Think about it. We have we haven't had any cube radios in quite some time. Yeah. But that's exactly the I still think of it that way. And I yeah. bet you lots of our listeners think about it that way too. So I had to say, Oh, it's the little square ones, you know? And she says, Oh, the little square nine volt battery. I said, Yeah. Transistor transistor radio. I thought the same thing. I said, I, transistor battery, transistor radio battery. Nope. Wrong answer. Time has marched on, Pete. Anyway, um Before there's you- another before you leave the variable capacitors, I have one of those exactly like that in a 23 megahertz VXO for my 17 meter rig that uses a 4.9152 megahertz crystal filter. So that's the only thing I can find stable enough to run the VXO at 23 megahertz. And it was stable, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was. See? Yeah. Right. I do have a radio with a VXO in it. <laughs> I know, I know you do. You know, and this is a point I wanted to make. You know, I kind of raz Pete, Pete and I kind of tease each other about these different technologies. But he he's he has earned the right to use the advanced stuff because he's built so much stuff with the old one. He's had the experience, right? And so what we're saying here really is don't don't miss out on on the the analog discrete component experience. Later on, you move on. You start using SI5351s because you've been there, done that. You know, you got the analog T-shirt. So um, anyway, I think that's that's a good way to look at it. One other thing I wanted to mention: a lot of the circuits that you see for these kinds of receivers, when they have the variable oscillator in there, and and and, and Miguel PY2OHH used this technique. Instead of the variable capacitor, or instead of the polyvericon capacitor, they use a, a varactor, a varactor diode. They put a diode in there. There's a special diode that when you change the voltage on it, you, you reverse bias it. But then when you change the voltage, you're increasing the size of the depletion zone in the capacitor, in the, in the, in the, in the diode, and that's in effects makes it a variable capacitor. What do you think of this technique, Dr. Giuliano? Uh, well, there's no utopia, okay? No utopia. No, there's no utopia. The, the problem is, just as you have uh, mechanical stability issues, you have to worry about the varactor having a very stable voltage. Mm-hmm. So, so on the front end of that, you need uh, a really, really solid voltage, and you need a really good pot. These flaky, cheap pots... I mean that you'll get all kind of noise in the pots, and you'll get that thing wiggling all over the place. So I mean, there's there's no you you talk, there's no answer that's gonna no magic pill, no silver. Right, pill. right. And the other thing is, I found is that there's a, a slight heat issue too. As this diode heats up, even slightly, over it'll time, move, it'll move. It'll move. It'll start drifting. Yeah. I went back and checked. You know, Doug Dumas. Doug Dumas. He had a, a thing for economy, man. If if he could find a cheaper way to do something, he would he would grab onto that thing, you know. And so you'd you'd think that this would be a tuning technique that old man Doug Demol would really love, but he was doubtful about it for many for the reasons that you just mentioned. It's it's I think it's deceptively simple, but when you put it in there, you find yourself as I did searching around for an yeah. alternative yeah so but i mean it look it's a good way to start and there's no reason why you can't build this thing with the varactor in there in the beginning do what pete said make sure you got a stable supply on it and everything else and if it works for you and it's fine that's okay you know the whole stability thing it depends on what what you want the re- receiver for if you're you know you're sitting there you just want to do it use it for casual listening in the shack that's fine you know every 
couple of minutes or so, you reach over, you retune the thing a little bit. That that that's one way of dealing with drift. But there's a lot of people out there <clears throat> that get driven crazy by things like that. So then you might want to move on from the Varactor, go through your Polyvaricon phase, <laughs> and then finally send 13 bucks off to Orrin Elliott, get yourself a cap, or jump right into the modern era of Julianism and get uh, you know an SI5351. Well, the uh, the thing is too, if you're going to put a pot on there, it's probably a really good idea to put a 10 turn pot. Because it's a yeah. single turn pot, man, you're going to blow right by those frequencies. Oh and, yeah. Uh, so you 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 know probably with the 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 polyvericon, you had a uh, uh, you had sort uh, some sort of a, a reduction drive on yeah. on uh, John Henry's, and then you got yeah. a reduction drive on that one. That's a reduction drive on the polyvericon, but yeah. at one point I th- you could even actually put the reduction drive on a pot, you know, yeah. just just to slow it down. Because you're right, you're you're you're, you're tuning a really wide range of frequencies, like in half a turn, yeah, of the pot or the capacitor. That, so the reduction is, drive becomes important. That is another issue, and that issue is the nonlinearity. Yeah, you, you will find that you know you spread things out on a VXO. You get a whole big frequency change in just a small increment versus uh, the whole turn. So, I mean, a 270 degree pot, you're you're able to get half the frequency change in a, a quarter turn of the pot, right? <laughs> and, and the and the rest. And that's know, why out. you know that's why you get when you look at some of these old, really old receivers, you get these beautifully shaped variable capacitors where it's got this kind of elliptical thing going on so that the rate of change in capacitance as you turns it yeah and that that helps too but most of the caps that we're dealing with are not like that but i have i have a few of those but you're absolutely right and that is one of the disadvantages the undeniable disadvantages to this technique as compared to the si5351 i mean with my bidx digitia i've got it set up so every little increment of the rotary encoder is exactly one kilohertz so bing, 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 I move around and it works fine. But that doesn't happen with the more analog techniques. But one of the ways I came to control that was just to limit the frequency range that I was covering. So when I first, when I built John Henry's receiver, it covered 7 to 7.3. So you do get much more of that kind of, at, at the high end, it's kind of squished, all the signals are a bit crunched together. But then I, I on, the, on the one I built, I'm only interested in the phone band, so I only went from 7.125 up to 7.3, and there was a little bit less of that. But yeah, you're right, that's a problem. Hey, one thing I wanted to mention on this whole project, I had kind of an interesting exchange. I, I put the schematic out there, and I said to people, hey, take a look at it, and, and let me know if you see anything wrong or anything you think isn't right. Uh, you know, and when you ask people to do that, you have to, I, I mean, you have to accept, you know, their, their suggestions. And I got... <laughs> Pete's, Pete's Italian and he has a tough time dealing with this stuff. All right, but but I got I got I got I thought a really interesting question from Joe W3JDR. He looked at the mixer topology and said it was not quite what he was you know used to. And I and I I went through the same thing because it doesn't look like the standard mixer that appears in a lot of uh, Doug DeMoss circuits and and things like that. So. At first, Joe was saying, I don't think it'll work. I think you're going to have excessive losses. But I, I, and I listened to him and I checked it out. But my first data point was that the receiver sounded really good. I mean, and it wasn't deaf. I've had a lot of deaf receivers where, you know, you can only hear strong signals. You're not hearing the band noise. 
with this receiver, when I hook up the antenna on the back, the noise level immediately jumps up, which makes me realize that I'm, I'm hearing the noise floor from the universe, right? And you really can't get more sensitivity than that. You know, you're just going to be making the noise louder. And you're going to overload the receiver. Right, right. The other thing that I did, and this is a tool that you often mention, and I think it's a really good tool, and I had done this before, I turned to LT Spice. Here's another factor. I'm working off, off a, a, a schematic diagram that, that, uh, er, that Oliver wrote maybe 15 years ago. It was in Sprat 100. There's a possibility that there's a, an error in the schematic. I mean, there's errors in all schematics. There's errors in schematics that I've put out. I'm pro- there may even be a couple in, in yours. You know, yes. you're, you do it, it looks right to you, it works, then you don't realize, whoops, I, I, you know. So I had to take that into consideration. Perhaps there was an error. The way you could check for errors is with LT Spice. Build the circuit in LT Spice and then put, you know, signal generators for the signal coming from the antenna, signal generator for the the signal that you'd expect to come up from the, the local oscillator, and see if it spits out in LT Spice an audio waveform, right? And I, and I did that with uh, Oliver's circuit, and it worked, to me, it worked to my satisfaction. Joe thought I think it should have had a bit less loss in there, but I was just happy to see that it was clearly mixing, right? And so in that sense, it was working. I also got in touch with Oliver, I found his email and I wrote to him and asked him this question and he said that no, the circuit as it appeared in Sprat was correct. It is the circuit that he had used and he'd seen it used many times before and it worked well. So that was another data point. But then we got the most solid of confirmations. We turned to the person that we always turn to, Allison. Allison, yeah. And I said, I asked the question to Allison. I said, Allison, was it KB1 GMX? GMX, yeah. Man, I tell you what. When Allison tells you the circuit's good, it's good. <laughs> Take that to the bank. Take it to the bank. Allison doesn't make mistakes yeah. in this era. No. Anyway, she looked at it and she wrote back and she said, no, that'll be fine. And so for me, it was interesting to explore it. And it was also an interesting opportunity to, to think about why, how those diodes were doing the mixing. Why specifically? How is that coil being used? How is the 1K pot in there? What are the what? It makes you really think more deeply about how one of these tiny little subcircuits, even if it's only containing three or four parts, is performing some major electronic wizardry. It's taken RF from your antenna and turned it into an audible signal. Right? That's pretty amazing. And to do it with three or four parts, wow pretty good anyway i thank i thank joe for raising those questions and that's that's why we put the schematic out there and ask for for input pete i've been droning on far too long tell us about what's on your bench you you gotta do the shameless commerce division bill you oh man weeks, com- good two weeks left two, two weeks, weeks left two weeks santa santa's looking for some funding yeah um yeah hey, please guys continue to use the uh the amazon.com link on the Solder Smoke blog page, you'll see it up in the upper right. Just begin your Amazon shopping there. Search for whatever it is you want to buy: a Lamborghini, a McLaren. new Rigol Scope, or McLaren, an aircraft of some sort. Things that you really need. And you know, we here at Solder Smoke get five percent ching from Mr. Bezos. 
He does. It's not. He's not going to miss the money. Solder smoke. We could use the money. We, we use it to buy all kinds of useful stuff here to support the solder smoke effort. So thank you for reminding me of that, Pete. And uh, now Amen. we're going to talk about something really important, which is what's on your bench. I, I want to make a postscript here. I'm not sure is his name Oliver Olivier. I, it's hard for me to pronounce. Uh, yeah. And then he also goes by Ernst, but he's a great guy. He's got a wonderful site. I have I have a picture of his site up on and, and a links to his site on the on the Solder Smoke blog. You, but F five L V G a you, real a true tour, wizard. You tour tour through Sprat and there's yeah. always a receiver article. This guy builds receivers. Lots he of builds, regens. Really oh, super regens. So I mean if you got Sprat, go go tour through there, and you get some really great ideas. So he had yes. he had some trans, he he made some transatlantic contacts with the Regen receiver too recently that he's quite happy with. So yeah, he, yeah a great yeah, fellow. Yeah, amazing. Well, let's talk about what's on my bench, but I want to take a small detour, and we're going to do it really quick. I've had two recent blog posts, one about lid operators. Okay. And, <laughs> and 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 for those who don't know, lids are is a derisive term from the early days of ham radio about guys who are operators who shouldn't be operators, and bad operator, bad operator. And and I ran into one here, and I think what he really needs to do is to read the solder smoke blog and start with a project like that to understand what he's doing, because this guy's an amateur extra. He essentially filled out the box tops and he's got an amateur ticket and he gets on the air and he's got a really terrible signal, doesn't know what to do. So if he had spent some time <laughs> following Bill's process, in other words, learning about the circuits, what they do, when you have a problem, you know where to look. And so that's that's really, really important. And I think the other thing, too, is uh, another blog post dealt with uh, the good old days. You know, when guys got on the air. They, they built their equipment because they couldn't buy it. <laughs> it didn't exist. I mean, when Schnell, Schnell wanted to do the transatlantic communications, wh where'd he go buy something? He had to build it, and he had to understand it. And it was through building it you, you developed the skill that says, well, let's try this, let's try that. And and that's why we are we are today because of the fact that people had to build things. They just didn't flash the plastic, and the next thing you know, they got some – Five thousand dollar rig sitting in front of them. You know, you could easily spend twelve thousand bucks just to get on the air today. Who does that? <laughs> Lots of people, and they have no idea the fun that they could have if they built a two tube regen and a one tube transmitter. <laughs> I mean, you, you yeah, you know, live till you did that. You know, just real quick, I agree with you about the, the 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 old time builders. And one of the sad things for me is you very often on the air run into an old timer. And you tell him about your homebrew gear, and he says, "Oh wow, I I hadn't I haven't done that in years." Why? We all. Then he'll say, he'll follow up. He'll say, "We all stopped doing that once we could get the commercial gear." And I, I feel like saying, "Dude, it wasn't obligatory. I mean, you could have yeah. continued with the yeah. homebrewing, and you know." But but there are guys now when you talk to them when they realize that this kind of building is going on, especially with SSB gear, especially with rigs like the Bidex. I've had a lot of guys say, you know, you've given me an idea. Maybe I should get back into this thing. What was that link to the Bidex? Yeah. 40, you know, so, yeah. yeah. F 59 bucks. <laughs> there you go. 59 bucks. 59 bucks is the new 10K. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so, to that end, um, what's on my bench is, Bill, I went over the dark side. 
completely. Completely. <laughs> well, first though, since it was la- expected. <laughs> since our last podcast, I built three transceivers. <laughs> I finished off the simple siever, and uh, I, I, I'm just really pleased at that. That that re- works really, really well. well. Well, you know, you've been proposed for the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most transceivers <laughs> built in a lifetime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In one year. In one year. <laughs> Uh, then I then I followed up on uh, and uh, the pioneering work, and I mentioned this in the last podcast of uh, Charlie Morris ZL2 CTM. He he's got this uh, SDR transceiver that uh, he, actually was some initial work done here almost two years ago this Christmas, and Charlie followed up on it and he got he got a rig working, and I decided to replicate his work. I added a, a little bit of some peach stuff in there. And to that end, I wanted to share with you um, something that I ran into that uh, how you have to have a disciplined process. Okay, um, I I built a new microphone, Bill. I, I had a, a defunct uh, D104 uh, head that had a, had no cartridge in it. You know, we went through this here. You you went through that process to find it, and so the uh, SDR rig needs a uh, needs an electret mic. So I had an electret, and I I built built the uh, D104 and I wired it in there and, and got it working and it, and at 5 watts it works just fine. I noticed that when I tried to put the 800 watts to it I was getting RF feedback all over the place. Well, yes, because you are, <laughs> let me rem- remind you, you are a member of the QRP Hall of Fame. I, I don't give a crap. And when you go when you hit that 800 watt switch, yes, Pete, bad things are supposed to happen to you. Yeah. So let me tell you the story. I found out that if I grabbed the the chassis of the amplifier and was holding the D104, it didn't oscillate. I took my hand off the chassis of the amplifier and it oscillated. So I so said, "So just keep your hand there all the time." <laughs> so I said, this is a ground issue, and I had to. Go, I said, "Okay, where could there be a ground issue?" And I went through it, and then I finally came down the D104 because I had bought this thing off of eBay. And it had a cord and plug on it, and, and it worked fine. Yeah, but that little braid was sort of floating around in there, wasn't it? What it was is there was like six or seven wires in, in the mic cable, and he did not – the prior person did not connect the ground wire, the, the ground shield. He was using one of the extra wires as the ground shield. So, <laughs> so I, I just did – Didn't I, shield I, very well that yeah, way. Yeah, I just didn't look at it, so – so I said, it's got to be a power thing. And so I switched the grounds, and guess what? It works right now. But, I mean, you had to go through a discipline process. Could it be this? Could it be that? You know, yeah. you systematic. Think systematically. And, and we used to, when I worked for a living, we used to call it full tree analysis. You look at a tree, and you look at all the branches, and, you know, you eventually get to the problem. But also, an important thing that you mentioned, grabbing onto a clue. And the yeah. fact that it stopped when your hand went on it. Yeah, that's something that guys need to consider. That that's a data point. And when you're starting the, the process, ask yourself why why is that happening? Why ah, what would cause that grounding. to happen? It's grounding. Right? It's a grounding. But you know, if you if you don't make that connection, or or sometimes if you look in there, and you'll you'll notice that one of the components is a bit discolored. Well, why did that happen? Put your is it hot? Yeah, did it get toasted. hot? Is it <laughs> toasted? Yeah. That kind of stuff. So uh, the the, the tr- troubleshooting techniques. But tell us, Pete, about the dark side. What's it like over there? I, the I gotta tell side? you, this is so amazing because if you wanna if you wanna change filters, 
you don't have to measure crystals or things like that. Uh, there's a software package from Iowa Hills Software. You mm -hmm. just go in there and say, okay, and it has a, a graphic, kind of like the dishel. You know, you see the dishel shape. Yeah. And you say, okay, that's the filter I want. You say, let me see the coefficients. You get the coefficients, a string of numbers. Take that numbers, you embed that in the Arduino sketch, and you got a new filter. I mean, that, that to me is is the thing that's so nice. If you want to change something, you can change it in software, not necessarily the hardware. And I get really good signal reports. The audio quality is really good, and I know I know it works very well on on upper sideband because I got two wires reversed and I was receiving only upper sideband. <laughs> the I and Q got the that, that'll happen with the I and Q. Yeah, <laughs> so I've I done her, that. I got it reversed and it, it works. So I said, okay, it's this is really good. So the the thing is, is that let's go back to your point of your direct conversion receiver sitting right behind you. That rig is nothing more than two direct conversion receivers. That's right. No, I know. <laughs> two, two I know. Two direct conversion receivers. And guess what? A little math manipulation in a teensy, uh, teensy microcontroller. And guess what? You got an SDR radio. So Bob's your uncle. Yeah. I, I mean. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting what you're doing. And I, I really liked when I, when I was first looking at what you um, were doing, I, I said, wow, you know, yeah, okay. So you're using the I and Q the quadrature thing to knock down the undesired sideband and then you're just you're using dsp at audio frequencies right. to narrow you know so like when i built the uh, rick campbell's my version of r2 like the frankenstein r2 it was the same thing two direct conversion receivers generate nine q signals and that's how you eliminate one of the sidebands or the other and then what rick did in the days before DSP, or as DSP was just coming out, what you did was you had a, a fixed audio filter. You had a low-pass filter and a high-pass filter, and that's where you got your shaping. But, of course, you can't narrow it down or widen it out the way you can with the system that you and Charlie are using. Software, <laughs> yeah, versus the hardware. Yeah, no, very, very yeah, cool. Yeah, really so cool. Now, um, another rig that I'm working on, and I just posted some information on that. Is you can buy this three filter board on eBay for thirty bucks. It's got upper and lower sideband filter, had mm -hmm. uh, uh, eight pole filter. It's got a really nice shape factor on it for sideband, but it's also got an AM filter on that board. Three point six kilohertz, thirty bucks. So I'm mm -hmm. looking at building the front end with a three point six as like a roofing filter, and then dumping it in. Uh, through a splitter in the I and Q, and so you'll have a hybrid, you'll have a hybrid filter and D and SDR rig. That's you know, easy shame. to do. Yeah, but you know, three point six is that wide enough for AM? Do you think? I mean, really, for no, really good listening no, to the no, AM. No, no, no. But for roofing a, filter purposes, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it was. It was intended not for music. It was AM voice. Yeah. AM voice. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's yeah, perfect yeah. for a roofing filter. So I mean, you, for yeah. thirty dollars, you can get. Two rigs. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Oh, man. That's, that's what I'm working on. Good stuff. And I've been enjoying your blog post. People, take a look at, at Pete's uh, blog. It's, he's got some really good stuff up there. Anything else from your bench? Uh, I just keep trying to quit soldering my fingers together. <laughs> I mean, that's oh, the issue. All right. All right. We're, we're, we're almost in, in double overtime yes, here. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention. First, before we do the mailbag, sort of people in the news, a number of things have popped up. Uh, via the blog. First, Cliff Stahl, the guy who wrote Cuckoo's Egg, 
uh, or Cuckoo's Nest, uh, and, a, and a book called Silicon Snake Oil is back. Uh, we've got a number of links to his videos and stuff. He's, he is still super enthusiastic about electronics. It's got some really cool videos. We have it there. Our friend down under, Peter Parker, VK3YE, has been very busy. He sponsored his annual QRP by the Bay there in Melbourne. But like Farhan, seems to be moving towards VHF UHF. It was, I think the, the dates that they had for the celebration this year coincided with a VHF UHF event. So they all brought satellite gear and they were, they were making contacts through a new, a low earth orbit satellite that went up there. Makes me think. I know. I know. Well, I, I got an email from Steve Hartley, you know, yeah. Steve, Steve in, in the UK. Yeah. And they sponsored this thing. Uh, it's a youth on the air, the Yoda. Yeah. And and they were they had an interview with all these young 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 people, you know, yeah. teenagers to early twenties, and they were saying, "Where do you look to see the hobbies going? Satellites, <laughs> satellite communication, UHF, VHF, because it hooks the computer to the gear." That's it. No, very very interesting stuff, and I I felt myself. I felt the urge to get out there and do something with the satellites. I had so much fun with that years ago, and it would be great fun to get into it again. All right, third person we want to mention, what a great name, a homebrew hero. This is a real ham radio name, Yardley Beers. Yardley Beers. Uh, I I had put a blog post up there about a rig that that Yardley Beers made, and, and I made a mistake in it, and somebody from the local radio club caught it and contacted me, so I made the correction. But in the course of doing that, the fellow sent me uh, a picture of a rig that Yardley built in the mid-50s. He called it the Black Rose. And it was a very early solid-state SSB transceiver. I have a picture of it up there. Beautiful-looking thing. You know, it, and I, I just I just really like that. So we're going to dig some more into that. But thanks for the folks who sent me the information about Yardley beers. Finally, John Krause. W8JK. Yeah. And he came up with that JK antenna, like a two-element beam, but kind of weird because it fires off both sides, right? It cut, it's really good at cutting off on the ends, but it's bi-directional. Now, I heard on, on my little DC receiver over there, I, had, I was tuning around. And you know how sometimes you have the receiver on when you're working on something else in the shack? I was working on something else. And I'm listening to these old-timers talking, and they start talking about the W8JK bi-directional beam and one guy says well you know what he used to do the other guy says what he said he was always trying to detect long path openings for dx work so if he thought that there was a long path opening he would because the receipt because the antenna was getting signals from both directions he would get on the air and just fire off a very rapid s- sequence of dits on CW. Did it, did it, right? And then he would listen to see quickly if he if he'd stop, the, the receiver would quick over real quick, and he would listen to see if he could hear the dits coming around the other side. Yeah. Holy cow! I calculated it's like 0.17 second. So you could do it. It's doable. And if he could hear the dits, he knew that there'd be a long path opening in that direction. Then he'd try to work stations on the long path. Think about this. It's like moon bounce without the moon. Right? Had you ever heard of that? Yep. 
You knew. He yeah. knows everything. Yeah. He knows everything. I can't surprise this guy. Yeah, they used to call it LDE, long delayed echoes. Yeah, but I mean, long delayed echoes are like really long delays, like a half hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's something yeah. different entirely. This is like really yeah. short delayed echoes. Well, this is echoes look, that you could explain. Look at the guys who took that concept of the 8JK called Step IR. And oh, yeah. Well, that I, I think that would be even cooler because the Step IR, you could switch real quick, yeah. right? Yeah. So you could you could actually, with the, with the Step IR, aim it all in one direction. And then when you switch over to listen, listen yeah. switch the antenna over and do it so quickly that you could hear the dits coming around the other side. Absolutely. I hope someone will try this and let us know. Send us some recordings. We want to hear these dits coming around from the other side with the Step IR. All right, Pete, that brings us to the mailbag. We've got some interesting mail. Greg, W0GAS, cooking with gas there. Greg, uh, very good. He reports, and I, I can do this just by acronyms, J-O-O, the Joy of Oscillation. MMM, the Michigan Mighty Might, CBLA, the Color Burst Liberation Army. You are inducted, Greg. Congratulations. But he did some really interesting experiments. He, first of all, he didn't have a scope, <laughs> and he bought a scope like like the one we have. And then and he had then to he figure out how to use it. And figure out how to use it. And the other thing was, I kept telling him, you got a crappy output because you need that low-pass filter. And when he put the low-pass filter on, he said, yeah, that's why always, I want a low-pass filter. Always listen to Dr. Giuliano. He'll always steer you in the right direction. We've got a really interesting email from South Africa, from ZS1KE, Walter. And he sent us uh, clips from some old South Africa ham radio magazines. I hadn't seen these before. I'm hoping that they become available more, more widely so people can take advantage of the great projects there. But I was flipping through what Walter sent me, and something caught my eye. I've, I've been talking about uh, kind of a, um, a, a thorium-based uh, battery that you could take some thorium that's pretty widely available for like glow sticks and stuff and put some photovoltaic cells with it and create a very low-power battery. So I was asking people kind of only half-jokingly, will you be the first QRPer to be on the air with your own nuclear power generator? I don't think Walter was aware of it, but as I was flipping through the pages around the article that he sent me, in the South African radio magazine, they had a very simple, similar thing they were advertising, and not as a ham project, but as something that might be commercially available soon. And it was a power supply, <laughs> get this, based on polonium. Ooh. Marie Curie invented, found polonium, Ooh. right? With a thermocouple. Yeah, yeah, because it's generating so much heat. Yeah. Of course... You, you definitely won't make it to the next uh, sweepstakes if yeah. you're using this thing because yeah. it's it's going to irradiate you. You should do this older in life after you've had children. <laughs> <laughs> much, much later. <laughs> when they're not around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they've moved off to some other place. Don't try this at home, folks. The thorium would be okay. Polonium power supplies, mm. probably best, not best for the radio yeah. amateur. Um uh, Clarence, um, Lawrence, no, Lawrence in Wasilla, Alaska. Lawrence Lawrence is a, a globe-trotting ham, and uh, he's back up in Wasilla. He was in the uh, traveling around the world for a long time in the oil business, but he's back up in Wasilla, and he is joining Pete on 2,200 meters. <clears throat> he's working on this. He's got some receivers. He's got some big big, big stuff up. He, if you look him up, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. I think I have something up on the blog uh, within the last month about Lawrence's adventures. And you know what, Pete? I was thinking, he's up in Alaska, 
They got a lot of space up there. Eight miles. So that six that six element quad yeah. is do and they think big up there. Yeah. This is not a place. This is yeah. this is Eight the great miles. the new frontier, the yeah. final frontier. Eight miles. Right. So Lawrence, send us some some photos of that uh, that six element twenty two hundred meter beam. Have you applied for your license? I got mine. No, you got <laughs> yours. You did. Peter's Pete's licensed for, to transmit on. Was it six thirty and twenty two hundred? Yes, I, I'm official. I got official. Are you, are you on the air yet? No. DXCC? <laughs> are you going to be? Uh, well, I, I thought I would put a five nine on and and I was California. hearing stuff on, on Whisper, and then what happens? I got an email from Steve up there in Canada saying you're not on really six thirty. You're screwing things up. You're reporting all these stations. It's the wrong. I, I don't know why I had to receive a tune, but I think it had to do with the five seventy because the five seventy doesn't really tune down below about four megahertz. I think that's what the problem was. Pete, this gives us the opportunity to wrap up this program because where you're going now is 200 meters and up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, Merry Christmas, yeah. Pete. Merry Christmas to you, Bill. This has been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, uh, I just, every time we do a podcast, I, I mean, I wish we could cram 10 hours into about one hour because there's just so much to talk about. But uh Hopefully our our uh, our listeners have uh, have enjoyed this session and writing. Well, hap- hap- happy holidays to everybody, and uh, who knows if I retire one of these days, we might be able to do more of these. We might go to two a month. There you go. I don't know if if people can stand it. Yeah, there you go. And just remember, think Amazon. You got two weeks left. Happy holidays <laughs> from the left coast. Happy holidays from Northern Virginia. Thanks everybody. Seven Thanks, three. Pete. Bye bye. Seven three. Bye bye. <laughs> Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported. And there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!